everyone, and welcome to episode 140 of Midweek Metagame. I'm HaramGG, joined by one of my regular co-hosts this week, Patrick Robertson. Uh, hello everyone, thanks for joining us. Sadly this week, Gab cannot join us, he's on holiday, I'm sure you all know, but we're going to take this opportunity to do a very special episode today. We're not talking about modern, we're not talking about Pioneer. We're going to do a whole episode on what we think you need to do in order to prepare for a competitive Magic the Gathering tournament. As we know, many RCQs are coming around the corner, as well as all of you have been getting more into competitive Magic as lockdown slowly ends. Um, also, want to say, first off, thank you so much for three new patrons over the past two weeks. We've got Liam, Larion, and Claire. Thank you so much for supporting our content. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, it's nice to see more and more faces in the Discord as well, so get on in there. Yeah, definitely. We also want to shout out the podcast Discord. Please join in our Twitter bio, pin tweet, whatever, in the uh, in the description of this episode. Join up, send us your deck list, send us your questions, whatever. We've been really appreciating all the conversation going on in there. Gab and I have been on holiday for the past week, so it has been, you know, a bit more quiet, but expect way more conversation. Um, also, I've been picking up the Slack, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing you doing stuff, but I haven't, which... Uh, yeah. Hasn't been great. I'm in there. I'm in there all day, every day. I'm I'm answering questions. I'm playing. I'm playtesting with, with 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 other members of the Discord. It's been fun. Oh, sick! Well, if you want to playtest with Pat, get on the Discord. But as well as this podcast is brought to you by Card Market. For those who don't know what Card Market is, it's a marketplace online to buy anything Magic the Gathering related: deck boxes, sleeves, accessories, singles. You can sell on there. Pokemon, Digimon, Flesh and Blood, Yu-Gi-Oh. All of that. Go check out Card Market. They're amazing. Cardmarket.com. Cardmarket.eu, they're the best place in Europe to get cards. Um, but why don't we jump straight into things? Tournament preparation. For those who don't know, on August 6th, in four days, I have probably the biggest tournament I've played in my life. The Pioneer Mox Qualifier, 24 players. First place is to the Mox, and I believe top two get uh, regional Pro Tour invites. Or Sorry, regional Championship Tour invites. Which yeah, so cool. like qualify for the kind of first stage of the Pro Tour, like like winning one of these kind of PPDQ events that's been exactly. going on. Yeah. Um, and I've been testing for that, obviously. I will not be disclosing my deck list, even though people keep asking me, DMing me, offering me $5, which I don't think makes much sense, but... Your, your equity in that tournament's got to be like pretty significant considering their qualification for the mocks is like five grand minimum or whatever and there's only 24 players so like yeah. people are gonna have to make an offer slightly higher than five dollars to get you to get your information out of you yeah um i find it funny every time that they're surprised that i won't take the five bucks but moving on from that um we i have been testing with a testing partner cherry cherry x-man he's a twitch streamer magic content creator he's also qualified top 24 we tested for the uh, showcase qualifiers, the open qualifier for this 24 player player event. We top eighted uh, two out of three of them in the Pioneer format, which was great. The format is Pioneer. And I've obviously been testing for that. Pat's played on the Pro Tour many times, top eighted GPs. We both tested um, for tournaments. So I guess, what have I done for this 24 player tournament? Well, first off, it doesn't help that I went to Spain for... Uh, six nights so that definitely was a spanner in the works but the first thing that cherry and i did is we established okay what do we think people are bringing you know we got pen and paper 
what are the top three decks we're expecting to play, and then we're going to tune our deck specifically for that. So in the Pioneer format right now, we believe that the top three decks are Blue-White Control, uh, Rakdos Midrange, and then a third deck, um, and any third deck, we, we've been kind of deliberating what we think the third best deck in Pioneer is, so we've been tuning our deck specifically to beat what we think are the best decks. We've been playing against each other. That's one thing that I think is huge. A lot of players test for tournaments just against random players on Magic Online or Magic Arena. I find that testing like this is not great because you don't get to test specific cards that you want to actually try. You know, the the one-off slots, the two-off slots. So Cherry and I really have been uh, playing one-on-one. We've been saying, okay, look, we're really scared of Kalitas in this matchup, or really scared of Dreadbore, or we're really scared of Chandra Torture Defiance. So let's load up more copies in the deck to sit play against it more frequently. Maybe it's not good in the actual list, but you get to test against draws more frequently. Um, you also get to play against a player that you're kind of guaranteed knowing is playing how you expect the other players in the tournament will play. You also get to talk to your opponent. I think people don't value saying to your opponent, you know, oh, why did you kill this creature or this planeswalker or discard this card or not attack here? You know, you can't really ask a Magic Align opponent or a Magic Arena opponent this. So this is something that I've really focused on for this event specifically because I've found that it's been very hard to tune the main deck of Pioneer decks when you're only expecting a very narrow range of decks. So have you ever played a small field? I guess PPTQs, have you ever played I mean, doing this? I've I've played many PPTQs and I've won, I think I won four PPTQs in the lifetime that they existed. Um, you've made really, I think you made, you've, you've, you've hit on a really, really important point. Like in the age where we do a lot of testing online, it can get really easy to get caught up in just jamming your deck through leagues or maybe you play a prelim or two or something like that. And sitting there and being like, this is the testing that I'll do, so I'll just keep playing through these leagues. And essentially what you generate is just a lot of noise. Leagues are pretty good for giving you exposure to your own deck and exposure to random decks in a format. So let's say you didn't know anything about a format. You could learn things by playing in a league, like what are kind of decks you might frequently play against or what are, what are cards and strategies that people are utilizing. But it doesn't give you that focus testing that you're describing, what you're doing with Cherry, where you're sitting down at the table and saying, I want to play this matchup in particular, and I want to play it over and over and over again. And I want to figure out what makes it, what works from my side, what works from their side, and test specific things like you're, like you're describing. When I was playing paper in particular, playing paper a lot, we used to... Early on in the kind of process, like we had a, a, a local like team of, of people who lived in my area. And when we would, when we would start testing for, for events, we were a little bit unfocused. We would do what is essentially the league kind of thing, but even just in paper where we were just kind of like, hey, I've got this deck, you've got that deck, we'll sit down and we'll just battle them against one another. And no one really learns anything. But one of the biggest level ups for us in terms of uh, getting good results and learning more information out of, uh, you know, what is you know what is functionally limited testing time like takes a long time to play matches of magic and so you never really get enough games in to really learn anything particularly quantitative but when what we, when we really leveled up was when we when when we would sit down for a test we would say i want to play deck a against deck b and i want to know something in particular and you you use the example i i want to know what chandra torture defiance does in this matchup and so we would either load up a 
you know, maybe we'll play post, maybe we would load up our main decks with cop extra copies of Chandra, like you're describing. That's a good way of getting around the, the, the fact of magic online. Oftentimes what we would do in extreme cases, particularly say we wanted to test a sideboard card, we would just start the game with that card in our hand, like draw six random cards and put that card in my hand. And that was a good way of kind of like learning about, um, you know, particular sideboard cards. But the, the point, I, point I'm trying to make is that having a list of goals and, and questions to answer when you sit down and play a matchup was really, really, a really, really big moment for us in terms of taking that next step towards building great decks for tournaments. And I, you know, I, I remember, so Grand Prix Melbourne 2014, like we, we really sat down and kind of like said, what do we need our blue-white control deck to do to put it ahead of the, the other decks? And you know, the answer was Splash Black that gives us answers to red-green monsters. And you know, through focus testing and iteration, we got to this list, and that list kind of destroyed destroyed that tournament, basically. Yeah. So that's the sort of that's that's a, a really good thing is get get away from that mindset of playing leagues is good preparation. Leagues aren't aren't good practice for anybody, really. It's just about that's about learning your deck. And once you know what your deck does, you really need to know what makes it tick. I, I, I love your idea of like you know when you're saying like I want to know, I'm worried about Kalidas, I'm worried about Dreadwar, I'm worried about all these sort of things. You can even take it even a step further and say, "What's I want to attempt playing the matchup in this way?" So one thing you know that I've been I've been trying to do is how much I often ask myself when I'm playing kind of supreme verdict decks is how how patient can I be at uh, before I, before I start reacting to what my opponent's doing? So am I allowed to go down to like one life? Basically, is one life a safe a safe place to be in this matchup? So can I set up that supreme verdict on turn? you know, six or seven when I might, I might feel like I could cast it on turn four and get that two for one, put, take the pressure off my life total, but expose myself to like them resulting in Planeswalker or whatnot. But like, if you go into the matchup with like intent in mind, being like, I want to learn how patient I can be. And you'll just play deliberately along those lines, even to the extreme, you know, just, 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 just to find out the answer to questions. That's something you can never do in a league really, because you know, your, your opponent's not, your opponent's playing a random deck, you'll just never get an opportunity to do this enough times to learn enough about it. Mm. Yeah, and one thing as well that I want to make clear is while I advise this tune your deck and whatever, the most common question I get on Discord or on my Twitch stream is, I'm playing X deck and um, these seven decks are at my FNM, how do I exactly build my deck to beat them? And I want to make it clear that you should be good at your deck first and then tune your deck. I get a lot of these questions from people who are like, yeah, I don't really play much magic. I want to tune my deck to beat them because they think that the deck will kind of carry them. I, it's very clear that you should be carrying your deck most of the time. And your tuning is what gets you these free wins or or makes it easier for you. So I also want to say that well, that point, I, I want to say that it's very important to also not be too tunnel visioned on I need to bring the perfect list because you should also be bringing the perfect play style as well. So please have a balance. Um, and while, you know, it's easy to say, oh, I don't have time to play Magic Online, I don't have time to whatever. Well, you can always have time to learn how to play a deck. You don't, you know, you're clearly spending time on building your deck. So why don't also spend time on realizing what you should do differently? Like, for example, you talk about Supreme Verdict. There was a very good example that came up recently um, against Eminent Titan when I was on Blue at Control on stream. I had four mana, they cast a Titan, and they... Uh, what did they do? 
They cast a titan, but I had dress down in place, so it did nothing. I untapped with Supreme Verdict, but I also had Archmage's Charm and Solitude in hand, and they had uh, an amulet in play. And my Twitch chat is spamming, cast Verdict, cast Verdict, so obvious because I was thinking a bit. And then instead, I used the Archmage's Charm, I stole the amulet, I solituded the Primeval Titan, so that if they have another titan, I can just Verdict it and potentially win. And it won me the game. So I feel like as well, like a lot of people, you have tunnel vision, focus on improving your playstyle as well as improving your deck. And uh, I guess yeah, I think that's I think that's that's a really a really good point point you're making as well. Like it can be really easy to think about trying to like get the perfect seventy five for this exact moment in time. And you know, in the kind of extreme case, not extreme case, but in the kind of like in an ideal world, that would be exactly what you want to do. But if you have to be realistic about how much time you have in your hands as well. You know, you always say you were in Spain for for six nights or something. Like, you know, I have a full time job and family. Like, I can't dedicate the amount of time and resources to Magic that I would like to, or would be optimal to have the be at my peak performance. Yeah. So I do I do a lot of things. I rely on past experiences. So I played enough mag matches of Magic, enough hours of Magic now that I don't really have to. I don't have to learn things from scratch. That's you know, that's that's a that's a benefit. And if you're coming at the game from a new position, that's not a luxury that you necessarily have. But I also try to use my time effectively in between playing games. Um, someone in our, in our Discord actually was talking about this. How do you deal with kind of like getting too deep and like worried about like you know small results, like you know you know one play test session or that or this that or the other, and you know do I need to just get get out? How do I get out of this mindset? And one of the things that I do when I'm kind of either feeling stressed about kind of deck choice or whatnot or a little bit burnt out on trying to like get the fine, the last few percentage points out of the preparation process is to just take a step back and to think what are the things that I'm really uncertain about at the moment, solidify those, you know, get those list of questions out of my head, you know, maybe even write them down and, um, then I can spend like, you know, the next day or two when I have like free moments or I'm just doing things that don't require much time to idly think about, you know, what thing, what are things that matter in, in matchups. And if you're like a new and inexperienced player, maybe that's a hard exercise to do. But if you're, if you're say, you know, you know if you've got a deck that you're taking to F&M regularly and you're learning that every week, try thinking about, you know, the matchups that you're, you're expected to face. Like, you know, there's always some person who turns up with, with Tron. Like, what are the critical turns with that, in that matchup? Trying to think about... And essentially, like a theory craft, your way to um, an understanding of a matchup. Because it's not just about sitting there and playing games without any kind of intent in mind, or just kind of like you said, tunnel visioning on kind of like just you know, play my lands, play my spells. What is the perfect cyborg card? How can I just hose this matchup? But more of kind of thinking about what is ex what are the what are the kind of critical points that make this matchup tick, and where can I get an edge in those sort of in in the in those spots? That'll help you, you know pick better lines of play that'll help you tune so pick pick better sideboard cards and understand what cards you're bringing in and out in a particular matchup so yeah definitely definitely a salient point but the, you know on the other side of the coin though this is there is a, a player archetype who's just turning up at fnm and just wants to kind of like you know beat the regulars at their store and that's that's a totally noble goal and so you know if there's always someone who turns up with tron you turn up with you know uh crumble to dust or something like that that's good times for you so there is some value in getting get, getting those small edges. But I think if you're turning up to a kind of a large PPDQ or a kind of bigger online event, it can be hard to kind of make those narrow choices. And there's much more, there's much more percentage points to be gained in yeah, knowing your deck than there is to be in kind of 
having having the trump card to some one particular matchup or another yeah and i completely agree and one thing as well expanding on that a huge huge thing that i think people miss is they're like oh, i'm going to tune my main 60 and i'll copy someone else's sideboard no 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 please don't do this because if you think about it you side you play more sideboard games than you do with your main board right you have on average, you will play more games where you sideboarded in cards. So it's very important that you have a good sideboard, you know? So if I'm going to tune something, I'm tuning my sideboard. I generally don't stress too much about my main deck because in actuality, it's really down to, you know, how many games have you played? And you're like, wow, my opponent drew three or four of their sideboard cards and they won. Well, they won because their sideboard is good, right? And that's the same logic. You want your sideboard to be good. And you play more cyber games than you do main board games. And, um, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say that's definitely, that's definitely an important point. And one, just kind of anecdotal thing on that topic is quite often, you know, I do copy, I do copy other people's sideboards and other people's main decks at the same time. I typically try to copy 75s rather than build my own main deck and then copy a 15. But when you copy a good player's 75, and you go to play a matchup and you're like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I taking in and bringing out in this matchup? And you just kind of pull the cards aside in your sideboard and you pull the cards in your main deck you want to take out. And you're like, oh, look, they all add up. <laughs> it all makes sense. Yeah, but then you kind of, sometimes you kind of pull a sideboard off the internet or a list off the internet and that doesn't line up. And you're like, that's that person hasn't really thought it through. They're just kind of putting 15 cards in their sideboard that they want, to, they want for various matchups, but they're not thinking about how it all works as a kind of cohesive whole. Yeah, and... I think that um, also people are very, like, strung up on buying sideboard guides and and all this. I think that I really wish that people would learn to sideboard, not learn to buy. And well, obviously... Teach a man to fish, right? <laughs> yeah, not, not in a sense, like, I'm not saying, like, I know there are people who work a lot and you need, you, you want to buy it because you don't have the time. I completely respect that. You know what I mean? But I feel like there's a lot more people kind of cheating it because they're just like, oh, I'll just copy, you know? And what when you get to a point where like, oh, I actually want to play, I don't know, Blue Black Melon Modern because I think it's great right now and no one's selling a sideboard guide, you're kind of stumped, aren't you? So I do feel like if you're going to buy guides, at least try to work out why they're sideboarding like that. Absolutely. I, yeah. I often use sideboard guides as a kind of, well, other people's, other people's kind of written up sideboard guides as a kind of litmus test to my own understanding. Like I'll come, I'll come up with my own sideboard plan for a matchup and then I'll go look at the cheat sheet and I'll go, hmm, they're the same. Well, oh, they're different. And why are they different? You know, I, I recently, uh, I subbed to Misplaced Ginger's channel because, you know, I'd, I'd been playing a little bit of his red blacklist and I figured, you know, I've got a prime sub lying around. So I'll, I'll, I'll throw two and a half. Bezos, Bezos bucks his way. Uh, but he's got a sideboard guy for red black. And there's a couple of matchups there where we're doing different things. And you know, I asked him about it in chat and we had a discussion about these sort of things. And that's the sort of that's the sort of kind of benchmark for you know, your kind of you know, where's where's your thinking at and where's someone who's really put a lot of time and effort into the thinking. And, and as well as just what you're describing though, like you really want to kind of like get under the hood and be like, why is it that they're making these decisions in these matchups? Why is it that this card is no good in this matchup and they want to replace it with this when Particularly in decks where, particularly in the, the kind of mid-range decks where if you have like a mid-range or mid-range fight, like it's really hard to have a sideboard 
for your sideboard cards to be drastic improvements in kind of card quality. Like if you think about it, like on the in the opposite case, where you're playing like mid range against control, and you have a whole bunch of removal spells in your main deck that just have no targets, and post board you just swap them out for discard spells and like you know, planeswalkers or something like that. That's a really easy, obvious upgrade. But then like in the kind of in that middle ground, like kind of in the mid range mirror, like it's it's hard to turn a kind of there's very few like two out of tens in your deck and you can't turn them into like eight out of tens. So you just, it's looking for those small spots where you're exchanging kind of like fours for sixes and stuff like that. And, 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 and another, another thing that winds up happening and something that I wanted to, wanted to touch a bit more on is the kind of the way the dynamic of a matchup changes after sideboard, which is something that, you know, is not, not often talked about at length where, you know, I'm trying to think of a really good example. Right, okay, so let's think about, maybe you think about Dragon Rage's Channeler uh, in modern, in blue-red, in blue-red Murktide. That card's like often really quite good in game one because it's fast, it's aggressive, puts pressure on the opponent, and it gets them dead pretty quickly. But post-board, it increases your susceptibility to a lot of commonly kind of used sideboard cards like Endurance or other forms of Graveyard Hate like, uh, like Unlicensed Hearse or whatnot. And so that's just like one kind of like simple way that like a matchup dynamic can change pretty significantly and a card's value in a matchup can, can, can switch quite a lot. And so having that kind of understanding in mind about, you know, how a matchup plays at pre-board and how a matchup plays at post-board and how that might be different is quite important because it could be really easy for you to turn around and be like, okay, I'm bringing in all these removal spells against this deck, but really their plan post-board is to turn into more of a Planeswalker deck and suddenly you're left holding a bunch of one-for-one -one answers that don't kill anything and getting buried in card advantage when the matchup didn't feel like it was about card advantage in game one, but it really was in game two. Yeah, and for me as well, like, I guess also kind of saying like, oh, learn out of cyborg, but not teaching you is kind of dumb. So I guess my general advice for cyborging from my side is I found that bottom pioneer legacy, all these formats that you're going low, low to the ground. So if all these decks are focusing on mana cost making a card powerful look at your curve when you're sideboarding what card sticks out to you like okay wait a second i don't have enough mana to cast this card in the matchup you know like a lot of people would say jace the mind sculptor is one of the best planeswalkers of all time but are you really going to get to four mana in this matchup chuck it out you know and is that removal spell good yes wait but you don't want to pay three mana to kill something against hammer time things like this right judge off of mana and i like to go i like to look at my curve and i also like to look at what removal is good against my opponent and then i will consider cutting uh game plan cards quote unquote i think a lot of people will just be like oh i'll just trim things and hope it works out you know just look at the curve look at your removal and then you can start cutting um game plan cards is my general gist of it and also the longer you teach yourself things the way better you'll get and that's just general life advice yeah yeah exactly and i really think that to be honest the average skill level of a magic player is really high right now i used to play against magical line players who would play bounce lands turn one or you know like i used to have insanely bad punts on magical line and i never really see these fundamental punts anymore i never get free game wins because my opponent just doesn't understand it's interesting functions i've always felt like that i've always felt like the quality of magic online players was significantly higher than the average but as we're returning to kind of paper play i think 
you might actually see a little bit of the opposite trend, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be expecting your opponent to play optimally at all points in time. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely. just, yeah. Yeah, I, I, Paper Magic is riddled with free wins from people who are just leaking percentage everywhere. Yes. And one thing as well that's pointed out is, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, I didn't miss any triggers in my tournament. Well, that you noticed. <laughs> you know so. yeah well i mean yeah you, you miss 100 percent of the triggers you don't remember exactly so i think a lot of besides deck building if i'm gen genuinely first starting to go to competitive tournaments the first thing i'm doing is i don't miss a trigger and i make sure that my opponent doesn't gain any extra extra value from things they shouldn't like just they cast a card I don't know, Merktide Regent. I don't know the exact wording of Merktide Regent from the Exile Clause. What actually puts counters on Merktide Regent? I don't know. So I would read Merktide Regent every time my opponent casts it. Not every, if an every... instant or sorcery would leave your graveyard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go from, but... from your graveyard to exile. I don't know if it's leave or if it's exile or whatever. So, you know. It has to have been in the graveyard first. Yeah. For, it, for it to trigger. So, like, if you cast a spell of one, there's a rest in peace in play. Like, it doesn't trigger your Mertide region. But if there was spells in your graveyard and they cast rest in peace, it would trigger Mertide region. Sure. And I'm saying this because, you know, it's reading the card is actually something that I think a lot of players ignorantly overlook because they think, oh, I've seen that card on stream. I've seen whatever. I know the wording of the card in my head, blah, blah, blah. These are, you know, are you going to say 100% of the time you know the exact wording of every card? I highly doubt that. So, Given the frequency with which magic cards come out these days, I know absolutely none of the latest exactly. cards. Exactly. So yeah. reading the card of the tournament is great. Don't slow play, but you know you do have allocated time. Read it. Understand it. I think I think asking, you know, especially if you're playing with a foreign language card or you don't quite understand how a card works, calling a judge is, is, a, is a really good good thing to be doing it at a tournament if especially if you're particularly uncertain like there's no harm in calling a judge and just asking for like you know to clarify a rules interaction that you don't understand with the card or you know get it get get the oracle text or something that's in a foreign language like it's you're definitely right don't assume that you understand exactly how what this card does if there's any ambiguity you should really just call for call for assistance basically mm -hmm. agreed i also think tournament prep there's a lot of, in paper tournaments, there's a lot of value in valuing your personal health and hygiene because I, it, I hate it couldn't be a, It couldn't be a tournament. It couldn't be a, an episode, a conversation about tournament preparation without having a shower beforehand. Well, not necessarily that. I think being clean, being, you know, waking up, having a breakfast, having a lunch, drinking a load of water, these are all natural things that you need to be able to have a, a very high percentage focus and, 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 and endurance for a tournament. And the amount of times I'm on round six out of nine and my opponent forgets a bobble trigger or they forget to activate their unlicensed hearse on my end step or they forget to fetch a tap land. These things, you know, these little things are easy to forget These because you're tired, you're hungry, whatever. So I like to, I guess, general prep have a good deck, have a good cyborg, have a cyborg plan in mind. And then I also like to get good rest, understand what I'm doing for lunch, loads of water, make sure I'm showered, clean, feeling good. Because the amount of times I feel dirty in a tournament hall and it ruins my my mood is, is, is quite high. So 
I, I like this for tournament prep. I don't know. Is this something that you do? Absolutely. Um, yeah, shower of the morning of the tournament is like my favorite thing to do. Like, <laughs> you, especially, especially back before, like, you know, we had, I had a son and like, I was, you know, playing a lot more regularly. These kind of, you know, GP weekends or whatever would be, you know, you get, you're up earlier than you would be otherwise. Like I wasn't a morning person until I became a dad. So, you know, you kind of drag your ass out of bed at like seven o'clock in the morning. And like that shower was awesome. Like I really, really loved having that shower and just kind of, you know, it's business time kind of what, what I used to do when I go to a GP, I used to have like a fresh, like a plain white t-shirt that I hadn't worn. I still had the label on. I take the label off, put the t-shirt on, feeling good, feeling fresh, like looking clean. Do you go any, to this event now. Do you have any tournament stipulations like something you do before an event? I'm not like massively ritualistic outside of kind of um when it was GPs, I used to wear a fresh t-shirt. Um just like a like a like a plain basics, like one it maybe costs like, you know, five, five, ten pounds or something like that. Like a nice one. Mm. Um I'll yeah, have a bit of breakfast, but I was, I, one thing I really don't like doing is eating during a tournament. Like I really hated going, I hate tournaments with lunch breaks because I invariably go and eat something like way heavier than I'm ready for. Cause it's like the sort of like readily available thing wherever you are. And I always feel terrible after eating at a magic tournament. So I don't actually eat when I'm playing. I... So I, on GPs, I kind of go long hours without eating and I find myself better in, in fast mode. Yeah. that i am that i am when i'm well satiated i just feel kind of lazy and lazy when i'm satiated <laughs> but i'll drink a lot of water um in terms of like rituals in the before the event i like to write my deck list out by hand from memory at the event so like i'll kind of get the get get the um the deck list red sheet and i'll just write it from memory all my 75 cards and then and have it there so i won't make it the night before or anything like that i'll make sure i just do it on the morning, it kind of gives me that kind of centering, like, yeah, okay, like, I know every card in my deck. This is good. Like, I know how many fetchables I have. I know everything about it. And that feel, that helps me feel a little bit prepared. And I also just like any bit of quiet time as well. Like, it can be hard in that kind of crowded tournament hall or whatever, but, like, I'm a bit of a, you know, you might, if you ever see me at a paper event now, you might find me just kind of ambling around, kind of not talking to anybody. But myself, like, kind of offer my own world, and that's me just kind of just getting in the zone. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, you know, between rounds I'll have it, go and have it, go and have it, and that of the people. But uh, in the just beforehand, I'm kind of quite, I'm quiet and I'm kind of a little bit sullen. Just focus. I get you. For me personally, I really like rice cakes. In the UK, I think it. Yeah, I, rice well, cakes are good. I go for Tesco, Tesco rice cakes, salt yep. and vinegar. It's they're a good brand. <laughs> but um, yeah, because something quite puffy and whatever it goes through you slowly, you feel full, but. You know what my stipulation is? It's I listen to any song that's like kind of insinuates being at the top, winning, whatever. So I think I said it on the podcast, but recently I top aided the Axion now Mega Modern and Pete Ward and I both top aided and both went in the car together. And I I was like to him, I was like, give me the give me the ox chord. I need to play some music before we get there. I played all I do is win. Uh, nothing can stop me. I'm all the way up. All these types of songs. Yeah. That's a classic your your stream music right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Now doing doing what doing what works for you is definitely the most one of the most important things. You gotta you know, magic tournaments are long and they're hard and they're taxing. So you wanna be in as good a mindset as you possibly can be. Even you know, even the other stuff aside, like you might not like your deck deck choice that much, or you might feel a little bit uneasy about that. But if you can get all the other things right, 
then you at least give yourself as good a shot as you possibly can because you know once once you deck you, you, your deck lists in you can't do anything about that so you might as well try and feel good about other stuff what one thing this is the idea of kind of being ready to play long hours is something that I, I we're probably quite out of touch with over the last couple of years considering you know we've been at home a lot more you know on an you know, on our devices or looking at screens a lot more, but like going and sitting in a room of people for 10, 12 hours and trying to be the best player in the room at the end of the day or the, you know, the winner at the end of the day, it requires a lot of mental stamina and a lot of mental discipline. And I often found that even in between kind of big events, I found kind of a lot of value in maybe, you know, playing on from eliminations. Say I was kind of playing a, playing a Grand Prix, Grand Prix trial, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah, people may not know what a Grand Prix trial is, but it used to be a, um, it was a kind of like local store level event where if you won, you got three buys at a upcoming GP. So when there'd be a local GP on or whatever, you would play the GP trials to get three buys and three buys is a huge advantage. So you would play these GPTs and, you know, even if you start, start poorly, like I would make sure I played it out no matter what the conditions are, at least some of the time, just to make sure I was keeping my kind of ability to play well in round like six and seven up. And that's definitely something that I don't have anymore. Like, I don't know how I would fare playing a long, a long day now, but it's something you can try and work on, be it kind of, you know, if you've got a day to dedicate to magic, maybe playing kind of playing, but like you're know, playing a few matches against a friend then pausing and then playing a few matches and pausing and playing a few matches and pausing is doing that all throughout the day, you know, interspersed with doing something else is, an, is, a, is a good way to do that. But yeah, these, these events are really kind of long and arduous. I probably told this story on the podcast before, but when I played Pro Tour um, Portland, so Pro Tour, Pro Tour Magic 2015, um, I, so it's eight rounds, eight rounds day one, eight rounds day two. And so after, we started at like, the yeah, first round is not nine o'clock, like first draft is at nine o'clock. And we went and picked up food at 10 p.m. That was like the, when, it's, when round eight stopped. And... I, we went and got Popeye's chicken, which I'd never had before. And I was like, actually quite excited to try and to try it. But I rem we got, got back to our flat and I like plated up a bit of food and I went to sat down on my bed and I just woke up next to this plate of food that hadn't been touched. Like I have no memory of what happened after I sat down. I was just so exhausted. Like I've never been so tired in my life. And yeah, that's the sort of feeling you can get at the, at the last rounds of these tournaments. It's just, you know, that will, that will happen to you if you're going to go and win the top eight of some kind of like six or seven round local event, like you got to be ready to play those out in those kind of wee small hours or with like limited brain power. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've had a similar experience. I went to, um, GP Birmingham on my own in 2018, 2018, I think late 2018. And I top eighted the PTQ on the Friday and then made day two of the GP Saturday, Sunday, yikes that killed me basically and yeah that's that, those are two very 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 long days <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I honestly feel like to just get endurance just i mean marathon well this run. this kind of <laughs> comes down this comes down to the sort of you know people talk about this uh, uh relatively frequently like being in reasonable physical health like is a benefit for mental activities yeah. like there are very few kind of elite chess players who aren't in decent physical shape and you don't you don't necessarily you wouldn't you wouldn't kind of associate chess with 
with being particularly physically active or an individual who's not physically active, but you don't have to be like, you know, some kind of shredded Adonis, but having some amount of kind of, you know, physical stamina is, is of big benefit to, you know, almost any kind of intellectual pursuit. Like those two things go hand in hand and then, you know, it's, it helps you a lot in the long run to be, to be in reasonable, reasonable physical health. But you know, that's not something you can adjust to go play on a weekend, a PDQ on the weekend on Saturday. It's just kind of general life advice. Mm. Yeah, agreed. I think something that I also think is quite important that we talk about is price splitting. Um, a lot of people... Fair enough. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know what they're meant to do. They get to the top eight, they get to the top four, they get to the finals. Should I split? Should I play? And I think, generally speaking... If you're someone, I like to look at it like this. A pro player is more likely to split because they're more likely to consistently make top eights, so it's probably good EV to just balance it out. Whereas if you're someone who plays a tournament once every two months, you're here for fun, you have a job, and 200 bucks won't change your life, play for the money. Because you know what's way cooler? I played for the money, I won, I got a K. You know, you can split, get 600, or you can lose, get 400, or whatever. I don't know how your split will look. I personally like advocating for play. Feel that adrenaline. Play magic at your top, you know, stress level. See how you can do. It's fun. Playing for stakes is fun. If you do, I, if you do need the money to split, I don't judge you at all. I've been in that spot. But I think, let's be real, if you're someone who doesn't play tournaments often, and you've got a job, and you're happy, and you don't need the money, let's put some stakes on it. You're here. Have, have, you, ever, have you ever heard of the, have you ever heard of the, the kind of, the baller split of the finals, where first place gets everything, like first and second prize, and second place gets nothing? Oh my, I've never heard of this before. Have you seen uh, we used to play, we, Oh yeah, we used to do that local tournaments every now and then. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, if it was two, two friends in the finals, it's this kind of, for bragging rights, basically, of kind of like, yeah. Winner takes everything, loser takes nothing. <laughs> Dang, I, that's that's. Insane. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I completely, completely on board with you with your point. I think it's too difficult to kind of tell tell any give anyone advice that's kind of concrete. I think that I, I think the best thing you can pro possibly do is if you do get in a situation where splitting is, you know, it, or prize prize splitting is put in front of you, so you make the top eight and there's like a fixed amount of prizes for you, and people want to talk about redistribution of it in a way that's more kind of like flat and equitable, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. If it's too complicated or you're not sure that you're getting a fair deal, you shouldn't, you can always just play, play for the price structure that's established. And, you know, by the exact same token, if people put on an offer, you shouldn't feel bad about it, taking the split, a split that's put in front of you as well. So you just do what works for you and don't feel like you'd be pressured by other people's kind of majority consensus. It's actually quite difficult I think socially to stand there in a top eight of people who seven people who want to split and be like, no, I want to play. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And so I, if that's not, if you find yourself in that situation, you are that one person, I would say everything you are well within your right to, to make that, make that call at any, any one point in time and no one can hold it against you. Yeah. And if they do, they're being, they're being irrational. If, if you do find that, you know, generally, you know, the top eight is looking to split or not. You can always ask for like, they give everyone two basic lands. Red is split. Green is play. And then, do you know what I mean? And you can yeah, anonymously I, yeah, vote. Yeah, anonymous votes is actually a, 
a pretty good way of doing it. I haven't seen that happen very often, but it is it is a very nice way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Of kind of blind blind polling basically. So no one has to reveal themselves as the non splitter or the person who wants to wants to go against consensus and you'll only split if there's consensus. Yeah. And another thing we should talk about is IDing into Toppy. A lot of people mess this up. When do I ID? When do I play? Do you do you have any good advice for this? I've drawn myself in the ninth before at a hundred and thirty person PDQ. Yikes. It was pretty fun. My friend and I got paired at five and at fifth and sixth, and we we ID'd and he made it in sixth and I, I finished ninth. Um, so my my advice for this is it's not simple stuff to do tiebreaker math on the fly from the sheet if you're inexperienced at it. I mean, so for those of you who just haven't dealt with this at all, essentially the standings are done by match win point so match points. So you get one three points for a win, one point for a draw, zero for a loss. You rank by that, but people who have got the same point score or same record, essentially, uh, ranked according to their tiebreakers. And the tiebreakers are, I believe, there's three sets of tie, well, four sets of tiebreakers, actually, but the, th the three that matter in order are your match win percentage, no, your, your opponent's match win percentage, your, your game win percentage. So I should probably look this up before I say something stupid. Yeah, so the three the three tiebreakers that matter. The first tiebreaker is your opponent's match win percentage, then your game win percentage, then your opponent's game win percentage. And these are kind of numbers that if you've been winning in the tournament, you know, so say you won the first four rounds or five rounds or whatever, your opponent's match win percentage is likely to be good. And because you know they've all, they're also doing well because you're paired based on record. But if you've if you've lost the first round, say, and you've come from the back of the pack, then maybe you could you'll find yourself with your opponent's matching percentage is not so good. But well, the thing that's really important to, to think about is just what's the sort of kind of how much can a tiebreaker shift by in any one given in, in any given round? And so for like a very, very, very large tournament like a Grand Prix that's happening over two days and over 14 or 15 rounds. Towards the end of the tournament, tiebreakers shift not very much because one round doesn't actually, you know, one out of 15 rounds doesn't affect the opponent's match win percentage massively. But in smaller tournaments, it can be quite swingy. So if you're playing a kind of five or six round PPDQ at your local store, it's it's not unheard of for tiebreakers to change by like five or six percent uh, from any given round. And so the simple thing to do when you get in a situation of tiebreakers is basically look at everyone who will get paired. Uh, one, one thing that really helps actually is in the last round, you get paired based on ranking. So one plays two, two, uh, three plays four, five plays six, seven plays eight, et cetera. And then if people have already played, then they kind of, that jumbles things up a little bit, but you kind of know roughly who's going to play against who going into the final round. And so you sit there and think about what's going to happen if, you know, can player one, can player one miss if they, if they draw or if they lose. Yeah, see what everyone's essentially playing for. Kind of do do the maths of like, what if I added three points to to half of these people's totals, or added one point to half of these people's totals? Is there some ambiguity? Like, you know, are there, is there uncertainty in kind of slots, you know, seven and eight, say? And you know, I mean, there might be kind of four or five people fighting for seventh and eighth slot. In which case, you have to look at those people's tiebreakers and think about where do I stand in in relation to the other people. If my tiebreakers are low, then you know, chances are you probably just have to play. If your tiebreakers are high and you're going to be in that slot if you if you take the draw then maybe you can take your chances maybe you shouldn't but i think the simplest advice you can give is when in doubt you should just play i mean you we came to play magic um 
you know, you should definitely, if you definitely think it's safe to draw, like it's great equity for you to draw in the top eight. But if you're really over uncertain and your opponent's pressuring you to do something you don't want to do or you're not feeling certain about, like just just like with the prize split thing, you know, you're here to play magic, you're well within your right to just say, well, let's, let's play and move on with your life. You know, just kind of, you know, your, your opponent will only kind of be grumpy at you for a few seconds and that's on them, you know, not on you. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've seen a lot of ID denials and there's, you know, essentially 30-year-old <laughs> babies crying in a game store. Right, yeah, I've definitely I've definitely seen my fair share of people kind of getting disgruntled and upset where, like, you know, they feel entitled to drawing because they've gotten themselves in this position that their opponent won't oblige. And again, that's that's totally on that individual to kind of deal with their own problems because, you know, the rules of the Magic Overs turn up and you can play any match you want to play. But also, you have no idea about the kind of motivations of the other person as well. So, like, it might be very well... It might be that that person doesn't really kind of understand that they can ID safely or even if, like, it was explained to them, they wouldn't feel 100% confident. And so they don't feel comfortable doing that, so they should just play the game of Magic. It could also be that that person doesn't want to play... doesn't want you in the top eight because it's a bad matchup for them. And so they'll play. And like take their take their chances of beating you and eliminating you from top eight so that they don't have to play against you in the elimination rounds. It can also be that you know playing for seeding, like you know, we've been playing Magic Online a lot lately, and Magic Online doesn't pair by doesn't doesn't determine play or draw in the top eight by stand, by seeding, but that's you know, in paper tournaments, that's what happens. First first place is on the play the entire way through the top eight, and that's a huge advantage. So playing is is got an added benefit there. I've also seen stores that have uh, prizes based on Swiss finish, and so like, they could just be playing for like you know, six more booster packs or whatever, and that's again totally reasonable. And you know, sometimes you sometimes you're in that spot and you're like, sweet, I'm going to be at, at ID in, and you, and your opponent won't ID with you, and they beat you, and you're out, and that sucks. But you'll get over it, and you'll play another Magic tournament, and it'll be your day another day. Um, yeah, that's kind of probably the last point I want to make is that any one given tournament means incredibly little in the grand scheme of things uh it can be really easy to put a lot of pressure on yourself to kind of perform really well and you know have consistent results because that's what you think like you know will impress your friends or like, improve your standing in the community or whatever but what i think i think what gives you the most most kind of legs in terms of uh, kind of uh, longevity in magic and uh, maximum enjoyment in magic is to just roll with the punches take it as it comes you know, you feel bad about losing, but like it's fine. Like this one thing that like all the kind of pro players will tell you is they've lost way more matches of Magic than you ever have, and that's totally fine. You know, the one thing they're really good at doing is getting back on the horse and playing again. And yeah, so not taking it too hard if it doesn't go your way. Like Magic tournaments are designed to create losers, not winners. You know, hundreds of people enter and one person wins. You know, there's what is everyone else going to do? They've well, they've, they've paid money and they've had an enjoyable day doing something and competing in something. And hey, you didn't win it, but like you know, you can't win them all. That's some really good advice. To be fair, I think a a lot of people do really get hurt. They prep for a tournament, they go two two drop, th you know, two three drop. And the thing I'd like to say is, at the end of the day, you can practice magic all you'd like, bring the perfect deck. You draw no lands, you know, it's not your fault. A lot of magic can also not be your fault. You can play the right line and lose sometimes, so... I mean, even even if it is your fault, like, who cares? It doesn't matter. A friend of mine said something really sage to, sage to me one time. He said that 
this is in response to someone in our local community getting caught getting caught cheating and he kind of put it to us so like what is the purpose of what is the purpose of taking this so hard and making this so seriously the stakes are so low even at the highest level like you win a magic pro tour fifty thousand us dollars like yeah it's big money it's it's money it's good money it's life-changing money but the amount of effort and time you put into that to get to that spot and that's the pinnacle of the pinnacle of success in magic it's nothing and your reward is your dollar per hour reward is negligible and like if you put all that time and effort into something that could would actually be financially lucrative then like maybe that you know that's a, that's a good way to spend your time so the only thing that we we do this for essentially is for the experience itself we 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 play magic to have the highs and the lows and the creamy middles and to go through the preparation and feel the disappointment and the excitement of success and so if you get fixated on any one particular reward at the end of it all, like you're looking in the wrong place. This isn't, this isn't the game to get rich or to get famous. You know, it's, this is a game that you enjoy the process. And so, you know, bad tournaments will happen. You will have downswings. And, you know, my friend obviously said this in the context of why would you try and steal from your community and kind of ruin everyone else's time to get, to gain advantage in micro stakes. But it's you know the the point is the same for just kind of beating yourself up about you know a bad weekend or, or or whatever like it just doesn't matter everything is about the entire thing is about the process and enjoying the process and so just don't forget that and that's that's my last thing i want to kind of say on the matter Jeez. okay sick then i guess let's wrap up this episode um i guess we'll just end i guess we're not going to put our life in the line. No, no price is right. Yeah, let's just thank. What are you going to play in Pioneer, Harley? If you had to play a Pioneer tournament for all, no, all no, for all the stakes no. this weekend, what would you play? No, 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 no. I <laughs> would play the Thank Card Market deck for sponsoring the Midweek Metagame Podcast. I also yes. want to thank everyone for listening this far into the episode. We appreciate you. Hope you enjoyed this type of unique episode of just talking about something that we think doesn't get talked about a lot. Hope you guys yep. all enjoyed, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Later.